the right policy outcome is for transport schemes in the north to be financed by government because uh, they need subsidy. But schemes in the south of the country, which are financially viable, should be financed privately um, and funded by the fares which the users of them bring. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week is an expert in the funding and creation of new transport infrastructure. He's been building new rail links throughout his career, and is currently the Heathrow Southern Railway. Graham Cross, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Now, I imagine a lot of our listeners have heard of Heathrow Express, but don't know much about the Heathrow Southern Railway. What exactly is it? Yes, so Heathrow Southern Railway is a proposal for a new rail link. Um, It's about eight miles of new railway, mostly in tunnel, and it would connect Heathrow Airport to South West London, Surrey and Hampshire by train. Its main purpose is to give people who want to travel to Heathrow Airport an alternative to the busy and congested M25 motorway. Um, so they'd be able to travel to Heathrow directly by train and uh, in doing so reduce congestion on the motorway and improve air quality um, in that area of southwest London and Surrey. And is it is it going to happen? I, I think it should happen. Um, there's a very clear case and it's very well supported and it's clear how the scheme would be financed. Um, there are, however, one or two obstacles which have uh, really slowed the development of the scheme. And what are the main obstacles it's facing at the moment? The scheme would be privately financed. Um, so it would be financed by borrowing of money, typically from pension funds or investment funds. Um, and then that money would be repaid over time. The obstacle really is Department for Transport approval. Um, So the scheme doesn't actually need any government money. Um, All it needs to make it financed is for government to give an assurance that once the railway is built, um, trains will be required to run over it. Um, So as you know, the Department for Transport is the franchising authority, so it controls where trains go and um, all, all that's needed to give investors the assurance that they'll be able to earn back the money that they lend um, is an assurance from the government that trains will operate over the new railway once it's constructed. So the money for building this line comes from pension funds. Is, has this been done before? Is this, is this a new way of financing railways? So it's not it's not a first time. It is relatively unusual. Um, most railways tend to be, well, there, there are very few new railways built, but uh, those which are tend to be financed by, by government. Um, but in, in this case, um, it, it wouldn't be necessary for government to put up the capital money. Um, I, I mean, a, good, a good example of this is the, um, the HS1 high-speed line from St Pancras to the Channel Tunnel. Um, which is is privately owned essentially by a, a group of um, pension fund investors, and they've put forward the the, the money that you know, ultimately funded the construction of the line, and they earned that money back through the track access through the track access charges which the trains which operate over it pay. Um, so no, it's not it's not it's not unique. Um, it's not unique. Um, it is it is unusual. And HS1 was very much a, a big national project with the government pushing that it should happen. Is this the same? Is this yes. something that's come from government or has this come out of someone else wanting this railway to be built? So it's, it's, it's not come out of government. Um, it is, uh, it, in effect, it's a market-led proposal. Um, so this, this comes from a, a, group of, a group of railway people um, 
joining forces with a group of infrastructure people um, using some financing technology that's been very effectively used um, in the Thames Tideway super sewer project, um, aiming to build, um, aiming to, to privately finance infrastructure, which will be of huge public benefit, but which can be built without needing taxpayers' money. So let me just check I understand properly. I'm a I'm a pension fund. I spend a billion pounds, say, on building this railway. Uh, over the course of the rest of that railway's lifetime, every time a train passes, I earn a little bit back. And eventually that the total of that adds up to greater than the equivalent of a billion pounds plus interest. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. And then the, the train operators, which o- operate over the track and pay the access charges, um, they they earn from the fares that passengers who use it pay. Um, they, they earn the fare box revenue. Um, and the forecasting, which we've done of the revenues and the costs, shows that the, the new to rail fare box revenues, which will come in from the new customers, are larger than the loan repayments, which would have to be made um, to the to the pension fund. And, and so in, in that sense, the, the scheme is privately financed, but user funded and therefore doesn't need government subsidy or government capital. It sounds incredibly simple. W- why hasn't it happened yet? What's the what's the reason why it can't just start tomorrow? Yeah, well, um, I I wonder that, too. And I, I don't actually think there is a is a particularly valid reason. Um, the um, the Department for Transport back in 2018 were very keen on this. Um, they encouraged market-led proposals and, and we, we put this one in and we, we thought this was the, the trailblazer. Um, but um, the department, I, I think, seems, seemed rather reluctant to take it any further forward. Um, th- there were one or two obstacles. I, I think some were cultural because um, this, this came from the outside. It didn't come from the sort of railway industry establishment. Um, so it was different and I think may have been viewed with a sort of air of slight suspicion um, with no, no, legi- no legitimate reason to be suspicious of. Um, and then there was some there were some sort of technical obstacles around balance sheet classification with um, very technical discussions with some DFT experts, um, with DST experts trying to argue that although this will be privately financed, it would have to be classified as if it were government debt um, because government, government, government would be giving a usage undertaking and therefore government would still be taking some, some risk over the demand side, um, even though government wasn't putting money forward. Um, I never thought that was a, a valid argument, and we we had a very good case against that. But uh, unfortunately, the way with these things is, if you if you can't get past the experts, then it, it doesn't go into an approvals process. Um, and then more recently, um, uh, more recently, I think it's been it's been difficult to get government's attention on anything like this, which is kind of discretionary. Um, it also doesn't really fit the sort of agenda of spend of the agenda of restoring railways in the North. Um, Cause clearly it's, it's a Southern scheme, although we, we would argue that it has considerable national benefit. Could it be done without the usage guarantee? Does that, is that essential for the scheme to be unlocked at all? I think in theory you could, but the cost of capital would be a lot higher because the financiers would then be taking cost outturn risk and revenue risk. And actually, one of the reasons that the 
um, the first attempt in the mid-1990s to get a Channel Tunnel rail link privately financed failed um, was because the government was expecting the private financiers to take the risk both on the construction and on the revenue. Um, and in the end, the revenue side wasn't strong enough and the scheme didn't didn't proceed. The way the way we see it is that to get to get best value from for money from private finance, you need to allocate the risks carefully and not layer onto the private financier risks which it cannot control because if you do that then the the cost of capital becomes high it starts to look expensive and you start to wonder about the value for money and what about Heathrow because obviously they've got a huge interest in increasing the number of public transport users arriving at the airport I can't remember the exact numbers but they've got vast vast targets they have to hit they have a target of of raising the um, proportion of um, journeys to the airport that uh, go on public transport from I think it was thirty eight percent normally to they've got to raise it from thirty eight percent to fifty percent, um, and they 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 have been um, they have been interested but not committal I would say um, I I mean you have to have to ask them their their reasoning but uh, I, I do think with a bit more enthusiasm from Heathrow Airport it would have been able to be it would have it would have been possible to get the scheme to certainly to a, a higher level of development yeah if you were a betting man do you think this is going to happen at some point or not and if so when i think that the levels of road congestion are intolerable um around the m25 approach to heathrow um i think that the levels of, of air pollution are, are also intolerable um and i think that the the passenger experience of a road journey to Heathrow is also really not very good. Um, and um, if if only more places could be connected to Heathrow by rail, um, then a decent alternative would exist and many of those problems would be eased. Um, I I think in terms of timescale, um, the, the, the challenge is to get to the, the scheme to a point where it can start. Because um, once it starts, I think it's probably about five years worth of construction and commissioning. Um, but the, the challenge is getting to the start line, getting the government's assurances ready, and then doing the, the planning and consenting and, and financing stages. And what about this this model of financing? Was Earlier in the conversation, it sounded really simple. The taxpayer needs to put up mm-hmm. nothing. You simply have an investment from people who need a long-term return with a guarantee of that long-term return and that sounds great but then it sounds like it's really hard to actually make work there's lots of people all around the country who are convinced that there is latent demand for public transport that's not currently being fulfilled is this a potential for wider application or is it just too hard to make work it's it's not it's not hard to make work um all, all sorts of other bits of sort of utilities are are financed in this way um it, it is not unusual um and it is it is relatively efficient um and of course in the railways let's not forget that that rolling stock essentially is is financed in this way um and so the sort of the, the next logical frontier is to start to finance new rail infrastructure in this way. I don't think there are technical or commercial obstacles. I, I think actually the, the obstacles are cultural. We need to see from the Department for Transport um, a, a, a much warmer welcome for um, private investment in rail, in rail infrastructure. And then to move from just saying that to putting in place um, supply side measures which, which facilitate and encourage and why do you think that isn't there? I mean, we've had a, a conservative government for the last 10 years. You'd expect this would be a high watermark for private investment in the rail network if it was going to happen. Why is it not there now, do you think? 
I, I think there's a couple of cultural obstacles perhaps within the DFT. Um, I think I think there is a view that you know, if, if if governments can't afford to capital fund rail infrastructure itself, um, then it then it shouldn't happen. A sort of um, prudent view that you should only build what you can afford to grant fund. Um, I, I think I think that's wrong because I think it is reasonable to spread the infrastructure the cost of significant infrastructure over the um, over into the future. Um, and I think there's also a, a sort of lingering suspicion of PFI contracts. Um, so the government um, had some bad experiences, I think, with some schools and maybe hospital PFI contracts, where um, l- largely because of the way in which it's managed its side of the deal, um, it didn't get particularly good value for money. Um, we, we're always at, at pains to stress that this this scheme is not a PFI contract. Um, it, it's a sort of regulated utility contract. Um, but I think there are sort of some views with, within government that have had well, some views which are informed by bad PFI experiences. From there the is a real negativity around PFI. How would this scheme look if it was a PFI? Or how is this different? If this was a PFI, um, it would be government's idea and government would um, go to the market to say it's wanted um, it wanted PFI bidders to build a railway um, roughly in this location and um, it would ask bidders to um, come up with designs and routes and financing packages and then government would um, would choose a winning bidder and it would enter into a contract and it would pay once once the um, once the infrastructure was complete government would pay then pay an availability charge um, so as long as the infrastructure was available government would pay on a daily basis for this kind of model to go well government has to be completely clear about what it wants but in being clear about what it wants government has to understand that it may accidentally block out um, ideas that that the private sector would have brought if it would have been allowed to come up with those ideas by itself I think there's also sometimes a sort of hazard around variation. So typically government will change its mind partway through a process and then will often have to pay a sort of fairly a fairly high price in terms of variation and change. One of the sort of challenges of government specification is that government don't always get the specification right. Um, and that often lead, has often led into, into bad PFI deals. Um, but but in our, in our case, we absolutely would not be asking the government to do the specification. Um, we've come up with the specification based on our understanding of the problem and our understanding of the railway system and the potential market for travel here. Um, so we we would we would go forward with our our view of what should be done, um, and uh, we would own we would own the completed railway in perpetuity. So there wouldn't be any sort of short-term decisions about timing of maintenance and renewal to keep it inside the concession period. Um, we would be able to take a, as a whole like, you know, infinite life view when it comes to maintenance and repairs and look after the asset properly for the whole of its life cycle. And what would happen? I mean, I, I, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where the specification could somehow be completely wrong. But let's imagine for the sake of argument that Boris Johnson survives as prime minister longer than anyone thinks and regenerates Boris Island and the, the, the airport for London moves to the Kent coast. But what, what would happen then? Who's, who's left holding the baby if, if, if this link isn't needed anymore? In our model, what, what we what we've been asking government for is a is a usage undertaking that would last for sort of twenty five to thirty years. Um, so, um, if 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 Boris Island sort of took thirty years to build, which one would imagine it probably would, um, then um, not not none of this would would be a concern for government. Um, if 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 on the other hand, if government um, if 
if Boris Island sort of happened and um, you know Heathrow Airport closed within that thirty-year period, then government would still be duty bound to us to require trains to run over this infrastructure. Um, but my expectation is that you know that in that in that incredibly hypothetical circumstance, Heathrow Airport wouldn't just be allowed to be grassed over. Um, it would be reused for some other purpose, given its its transport connections and the sort of scale of land that, that exists there, just, just on the edge of London. Is Heathrow Southern Railway dependent on a third runway at Heathrow? No, um, it's not. Um, huge... Uh, when, when we're not in the middle of a lockdown, huge numbers of people use Heathrow Airport um, for, for business and leisure and trade. And um, the the volumes of people that that use Heathrow um, are are sufficient to um, make um, the scheme viable, um, even if Heathrow doesn't have a third runway and expand further. Actually, we talked earlier about the fact that Heathrow, this area of London, has some of the worst congestion and the worst air pollution in the country, and the fact that Heathrow has these extraordinary targets that they have to meet. And I think you said thirty eight percent to fifty percent or so, which of course. With the numbers of people increasing as well, that's that's a huge n- number of people increase. If Heathrow Southern Railway isn't financed in this way, what's the answer? How will it be done? So, so he, Heathrow Airport's position was that the the Southern Rail link, when when it comes to them trying to raise the public transport mode share to 50%, then their position was that the Southern Rail Link is not actually necessary. It's kind of helpful, but it's not necessary. Um, and I think a lot of people didn't really believe that. Um, but the, the Heathrow case for why it was not necessary was based on some presumptions around um, making much more intense use of the Heathrow Express, uh, making much more intense use of the Piccadilly line and crossrail projects. And then... Um, levying a, a hefty charge, they called it a vehicle access charge, of potentially as much as £50 per visit um, on any road vehicle um, crossing the perimeter into Heathrow. Um, and they were sort of putting, they were going hand in hand with some measures to upgrade um, upgrade bus services, build bus lanes and incredibly encourage people to cycle. Um, and they just about managed to persuade themselves that in theory they could get to the 50% mode share. But I was sceptical of the figures and very sceptical of the sort of customer impacts and public acceptability of some of those measures, which I, I thought may have been proven on a spreadsheet, but weren't realistic in if real I life. I would to try and understand that behaviour. It would be to say they're trying to avoid being you know, a bill. They're trying to avoid having to pay for this link. But actually, you've got someone willing to pay already lined up. You're not, you're not asking them to pay, are you? Correct. That, that's exactly our position. Was that Heathrow Heathrow Airport did not need to pay for the construction of the the new railway line into Heathrow. Um, they'd need to pay for the fitting out of the platforms um, at the um, large empty cavern that exists underneath Terminal Five Station, um, which I always thought was very reasonable. But no, they they would not have to pay for the um, the new rail infrastructure into Surrey. Um, that would be paid for privately and funded by the, the fares that the users of the link would pay. I'm quite interested by something you said earlier, that we in transport have kind of cultural obstacles to this way of financing stuff. But actually, in other parts of the economy, it's relatively normal. You mentioned the Thames Tideway Tunnel. Are there any other examples you're aware of where I can go and touch something that's been financed this way? Yeah, so um, if you look in the North Sea, um, there are vast numbers of wind farms um, you know, ge- generating carbon-free electricity. Um, they're all they're all privately financed. Um, government has given 
various undertakings around um, minimum usage and minimum pricing. Um, but they, you know, essentially that there's been a massive decarbonisation of the electricity grid without the need for government to put in capital um, because the private sector has funded the capital costs and all government's done is given a sort of long-term undertaking around pricing and, and policy. And you may not know of any, but are there any specific examples of transport infrastructure that if there was a different cultural approach, you think could be financed this way? Are there people out there who could say, I could have that connection if it were if it were done this way quicker than I would do otherwise? I I mean, there are certainly certainly railway stations which are in that category. Um, As to other pieces of, of actual rail, new rail infrastructure, I'm not I'm not completely convinced there are that the may the may be the may be sort of possibilities like a kind of like a crossrail extension to Ebb's feet or, or something like that 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 may lend itself to to this kind of thing. Um but I think it is probably in terms of replication it's probably more around new railway stations rather than pieces of new new railway line. And are there any particular railway stations that are being looked at for this kind of approach? Yes, yes indeed, yeah. So um one of the nice things about railway stations is that they they attract fare box revenue. Um, once you have a revenue stream, then you can potentially use that revenue stream to repay loans that you will have taken out to um, to, to fund the capital cost of the construction of the station. Um, so, yes, um, there are numerous railway stations which which would fit into that example. Um, I, I think I think one of the one of the other things which which is interesting is the sort of relative relative strength of farebox demand in the north of the country versus in the south of the country um so in the south of the country travel volumes tend to be larger and farebox yields tend to be higher um and that does mean that in the south of the country there does tend it it does tend to be possible to make cases for railway investment which are viable based solely on their farebox revenues um Whereas once once you start to go up country, that the volumes generally not as high and the fare box yields are generally lower. Um, so whilst there may be a good economic case for those kind of investments, they tend to need subsidy. And the view the view I tend to get to is that the right the right policy outcome is for um, transport schemes in the north to be financed by government because uh, they need subsidy. But finance schemes in the south of the country, but schemes in the south of the country, um, which are financially viable, um, should be financed privately um, and funded by the fares which the users of them bring, and and that way you you'd be able to kind of direct government money at the the cases which are economically viable but not financially viable. But you'd still be able to have rail investment in the south where it was financially viable. For a government committed to a leveling up agenda in the north, that sounds a very attractive way of thinking. Yes. Because you can divert all the expenditure to the north without what? neglecting the south. Is that being is it being thought of in that way at all? Well, we've we've certainly made that point to uh, any any government ministers or members of parliament we've been, been able to meet, and uh, we get uh, we get sage nods, but uh, no change in policy. <laughs> So what would be, if you could wave a magic wand, what are the sort of three key changes you'd like to see to, to unlock more investment of this kind? Yeah. So so first of all, a, a policy position from government that says private investment in rail infrastructure is welcome and encouraged. Um, number two, um, a sort of facilitation system where government say that, like, like it does with wind power, where government say that it, it will stand behind 
um, usage um, to, to encourage good value private finance. Um, and thirdly, um, a sort of way into the DFT. Um, so the trouble with this sort of thing is you, it's quite hard to find a, a way into the DFT. You know, there isn't a person who does this. Um, there isn't a sort of department in the DFT who have expertise and look after this. Um, so sort of upskilling governments, not, not to procure these things, but to facilitate and encourage these things and then to have dialogue with promoters, um, I think would be very valuable because it would mean that there was a, a channel into government where people with ideas and um, finance could could go. And is that something that exists in other sectors? You, know, you mentioned wind earlier. Does the energy sector have people in government whose job it is to facilitate this kind of project? Yeah, yeah I think I think so. And the, there have been various um, various units in the Treasury, I think, have been established at various points in time. So, so Infrastructure UK, I think, was, was one of the one of the versions. Um, and they they can be quite helpful actually in um, in doing that that sort of that second one of the three things I described there, um, but they need to they, they, they can only really be set up if there's a, if there's a sort of ministerial wish to to, to encourage the, the the initiative. Um, so yes, I think I think those kind of units can can be useful and actually have been very helpful in decarbonising the uh, electricity grid. And we, we need something something similar for rail. If you are, if we look back in in ten years' time, you, do you think that Heathrow Southern Railway will be open, and do you think there'll be other stations funded in this way? Yes or no? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. Um, well, and if if not open, then uh, under construction with uh, tunnel boring machines boring away through the London clay. Yes, I, I do think it will because I think I think in the end the. The, the combination of the environmental case and and the financing answer will prove to be irresistible. Um, if not to this generation of politicians, then maybe the you next You do realise the most important question of all, what will the tunnel boring machines be called? <laughs> yes, indeed, yeah. And I my sort of my first attempted my attempted first answer would be to hold a public competition, but I'm I'm terribly <laughs> worried about what will happen if I do that. So uh no, I, I don't know. We'll have to find a more uh, a more creative way of uh of thinking up names. <laughs> Diggy McDig face. No, I, I I that's just not what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. That's really interesting. Really interesting. You're welcome. That concludes the Freewheeling podcast this week. Thank you very much to Graham Cross for joining us and thank you to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed the Freewheeling podcast so far, we're still new. I'd love it if you get a chance to give us a rating or a review, but I'd also really like to hear your feedback. You can drop me an email at thomas at thomasableman.com or you can find me on the social channels at Thomas Abelman. Who would you like me to be talking to next? What are you liking? What are you not liking? Tell me what you'd like to see differently. Thank you very much indeed and see you next week. Bye.